Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. Very excited to be back in the saddle with a new episode after our week off. Hope you enjoyed the repost last week and very much looking forward to sharing our episode this week. A great one for you. Talking with Tyler Wenzel, a military historian. He has a very interesting background, active service in the military. He's also doing a law degree. Really interesting guy, fascinating background, who has written a book entitled Not for King or Country, Edward Cecil Smith, The Communist Party of Canada and the Spanish Civil War. And if you remember, about a year ago, I had the opportunity to speak with Jeanette Higgins about the Spanish Civil War and her father's time in that conflict. So for this one, I really wanted to talk with Tyler about the idea of biography, the background of Edward Cecil Smith, and what led him into the Communist Party of Canada and eventually going to Spain to participate in the Spanish Civil War. So a lot of this episode is Edward Cecil Smith's life before the Spanish Civil War. And if you check the show notes, I've linked to a couple places where you can find some more information about Edward Cecil Smith's time in the Spanish Civil War. Tyler has done some interviews, uh, one with the, the Wilson Center at Mac, another with the folks over at SpanishCivilWar.ca that dive a little more deeply into the Spanish Civil War itself than he and I talked about in this episode. We really focus on the idea of biography, how his background influences the way he looks at biography, the storytelling elements in it, as well as some of the more curious things about Edward Cecil Smith's early years. He was a child of missionaries, had the opportunity to grow up in China. There's fragments about his life, things that are in the canon of the Spanish Civil War that aren't necessarily true. So really a fascinating guy. And we talk really about that part of his life. So when you look at this book and you might think, oh, Spanish Civil War, it's not just about the Spanish Civil War. It's it's really a, a well-rounded book and look at Edward Cecil Smith's life. So certainly encourage you to check it out, but not before we get right to our conversation with Tyler Wenzel. All right. And Tyler Wenzel joins us from Toronto today. Tyler, how are you? I'm doing very well, Sean. Yourself? I'm doing as okay as I could be in the midst of a heat wave here in Ottawa. I hope you can't hear the fan that I currently have going. Bit of a scorcher here. Uh, I don't know. Is it still, it, the, there's cool air coming. Is it still hot in Toronto, Tyler? It's still pretty hot in Toronto. Um, yeah. That's uh, so, uh, and hopefully everyone out West is, is doing well with all the, the fires out there. I hope everyone is staying safe and staying cool out on the West Coast, certainly thinking about you here in Central Canada. So let's uh, get into our discussion here, Tyler. This is something that I talked with Jeanette Higgins a while ago about her book on the Spanish Civil War. And when you reached out to me through Ed Dunsworth, one of the editors here at Active History, I thought, well, we just did a MacPap episode. I'm not quite sure how it would work. But you responded and said, well, this book really isn't about the MacPaps and the story surrounding the, the history of Edward Cecil Smith isn't a MacPap story, necessarily in the same way I think Jeanette's book is pretty centered on the MacPap. So how would you frame this book for anyone who might look at it the way I did initially and say, oh, this is a MacPap story? Well, it definitely 
is a Mac Paps book. I don't want to scare away anyone who's interested <laughs> in the exploits of the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. Uh, Edward Cecil Smith was the commander of the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion for almost all of its existence, everything except for the first battle, which he joined as a reinforcement, and then he uh, left the field a few times due to exhaustion and injury. Uh, but for me, and, and that's, that was my entree into the subject. I'm mostly a military historian. I can't say fully a military historian any, anymore. Uh, but I started wanting to write that story of this battalion commander. But the more I dug into him, the more uh, interesting he became, the more multifaceted he became. Uh, because he had this really interesting, uh, he was a real human being, so I, I, I'm, I'm loath to call it a narrative arc, but he came from this very mainstream, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, uh, banker, militiaman, raised by missionaries in China, went to a, a almost exclusively white Anglo-Saxon Protestant boarding school in China, and Fast forward a little bit, and he is a diehard member of the Communist Party of Canada, who puts on, who quietly makes his way to Spain illegally, uh, and joins the Spanish Republican Army, becomes a battalion commander, and that arc was was really interesting to me. See, how do you go from, you know, a banker to a left wing communist putting your life on the line? for that cause and that's how he viewed the cause mm. so it's really about that about that uh, how did he get from from one point on the political spectrum to a very different point on the political spectrum where he is willing to brave you know the bombs and the bullets but also the threat of of imprisonment because he was doing things that could get you thrown in jail in canada Nonviolent things in canada but still held those risks yeah well, it's interesting to me to hear you talk about that because I've almost framed my own life when I've I've done talks occasionally where people ask for bios, which I always think of a bio as more than one line before a talk. It's it's way too long, but yeah, like so, sometimes they they will ask you to elaborate, and so I just say, well, I, I can talk about it if you want me to. And I was doing a talk in North Bay, and. I, I sort of explained my my story and I said, there's not really a straight line of how I got from North Bay, where I did my undergrad, to eventually where I ended up. And somebody said to me, no, of course, there's a straight line there. And, and you just have to sort of map it out. It might not be obvious to you, but you got to sort of see early in the story what might have motivated certain decisions later. And I think that's what you're doing in this book. I had the opportunity to go through it earlier this week, really enjoyed it. And, and I thought it was very well done how you you navigate that space early in his life and you present it in a way that it makes sense. And there's germs along the way where you talk at one point how when he was at in school in China, he was fascinated by Spain and the idea of Spain and what Spain is. And it, it creates that germ for the reader. And is that something that when you're writing, you're thinking about as you're going through, like, like are, do you have that end point in your mind? of this is what the ultimate decision is. And as we're telling the story of his early life, we're going to look for some of those things that might be pivot points or motivations that led to those later decisions. I did my best not to uh, situate myself because I, I can't pretend as I do the research that I don't know that he's going to Spain. Right. But some biographies you read, um, 
they um i wanted to make sure that his life made sense because i wanted to make sure his life made sense to me he was a rational actor who made decisions that might not make sense to us in retrospect but you have to look at it with the knowledge and the inputs that he had in that moment so i tried not to look at every little thing that i found and say oh that's that's where he got the idea that's where he made that decision you know it was, it was almost preordained uh, I really tried to keep myself away from that, but I'm comforted to hear you say that I did find enough threads to have it make sense because the nature of the of the source material that I was pulling on um, in order to weave this thing together was very disparate, mm. right? There was combination of things he said to an RCMP undercover agent, stuff in missionary records, stuff in the Communist Party press, a journal entry here or there, an interview he gave to the Toronto Star when he got back. Um, so it was, it was kind of all over the map in terms of the sources. And it was an interesting exercise to take from that and um, and, and try and find the, 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 the rational actor within that a lot of the materials that had previously been produced on Cecil Smith was very backward looking mm -hmm. and um, painted him as very much a two dimensional character. Right. That, that, that there wasn't, there, there wasn't too much going on in his life that it was just clearly the only thing he could have done. And I didn't think that was the case. So I wanted to get into the nuance of that. How is, how his politics played into it, how his religious upbringing played into it his sense of social justice, all of those things kind of culminated to him deciding to put his life on the line. Well, it's interesting to hear you talk about that part of it and how you put it together. Cause I was wondering that you have this project. You also have another biography in the works on William Crown, another individual from the Spanish civil war who participated. And I'm just curious to know what your thoughts are just in general about the place of biography. When you have a story like the Spanish Civil War and you have the 1700 or so Canadians who participate, the narrative of the Mac Paps, which exists in, in certain forms, and of course the Michael Petro book is certainly foundational to the modern understanding of the Mac Paps in Canada. Why would you want to go through and try to put together this story as a biography when you mentioned how challenging it was. There's just these fragments of information. Why is the biography of an individual, and you can talk about the William Crown biography too, if, if it helps answer this question or, or frame it in any way. Like, Why is the story of, the ind of an individual who participated an effective way to tell these stories? Well, you're, you're absolutely right that Michael Petro's book is uh, is foundational for anyone in this space, and it was for me personally. Um, I, I read it early on. I was fascinated by it. I went away. I um, ended up in law school, and I'm doing research on a broad, the broader phenomena, the broader legal phenomena of foreign fighters. And uh, I started off by wanting to um, find small individual case studies that illustrated certain um, specific legal aspects of, of foreign fighters. And the commander of the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion seemed like a reasonable place, uh, seemed like a reasonable marker on the table from which to start. 
Um, but the more I got to know this person, and he was only supposed to be maybe a few paragraphs in an article I was writing, but the more I got to know him, the more complicated and nuanced I understood him to be. And I kind of shifted my thinking at that point away from placing these volunteers into categories, which you have to do when you're viewing it from the 50,000 foot level. You know, when you're saying there's 1,700 Canadians and this was the motivation of this group and this was the motivation of that group. Um, I just wanted to study a human being who was a living, breathing, rational actor like me and see if I could build the empathy to understand his decision-making process. Not because I necessarily think it's representative of all the MACPATs. Um, several points in the book, I try to illustrate why he was in many ways different and in other ways how he was similar. Um, but that's also a factor because the Spanish Civil War is not surprisingly still very heavily politicized. And some editorialists may lean towards a very right-wing interpretation of describing the phenomena or a very left-wing interpretation of the phenomena. Uh, and I wanted to get away from that by saying, no, I'm not saying that these people were um, heroic anti-fascists fighting for Spanish democracy. I think that version is mostly true. Um, or fire-breathing, fervent, uh, Moscovite zealots, I don't have to take either of those positions because mm -hmm. I'm talking about one person. This is the one person that I can hand on my heart say I've thought about in detail. And these were his motivations. And you can have those debates about which phenomena was um, more decisive. But I'm telling you what this human being went through in his decision making. That was very appealing to me. So how do you think of that in terms of where we are just in general as a profession? Like when I go into chapters, although I haven't been into chapters in like a year, I haven't been in person at a bookstore since the pandemic started. But <laughs> in general, like, you, you know, when you go into a bookstore, I would suggest that biographies have become less and less common with the exception of military history. I think you know, if I were to read your background or someone with your background, I would infer from your background that you're somebody who might be interested in writing a biography. And that is purely because when I see biographies now, they tend to be from military historians and people who are, are interested in that. And I, part of me wonders if that's because of the way mili the military operates and that you have a decision maker and those who are below in rank, from my understanding, are expected to follow that command. And so therefore you can really figure out, well, this is the decision maker, this is the person who's pushing the buttons. Whereas in other organizations, say the CBC, it might not, that I've studied, it might not be as structured that way, that there could be a little more back and forth. So is it, is it am I wrong in suggesting that? And have you noticed it as someone who's now written this biography, that military history itself is is a subject that is conducive to biographical writing, maybe more so than some of the other areas where the the professionists started to move to over the last 25, 30 years. Well, I agree that the that military history is very conducive to biography. Uh, there's 
especially in the Canadian context, um, there's still so many Canadian military commanders who have not uh, been explored in, in very much detail. And someone might say, well, there's already enough out there, but we could go, we could have a whole conversation about which Canadian military commanders have not been subject to a biography. Um, so I'd agree with that. And that was quite possibly part of my own psychology in gravitating towards the, oh, I'll study the commander. That's a good place to start. Uh, the, and this story is a story of military history, yeah. but especially in the later chapters in the book, I, I don't want to say I put away what I knew about military, about conventional military history, but the, because I didn't, but the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion and the international brigades themselves were very different organizations than your typical First World War, Second World War, uh, Anglo-American Canadian unit of, of the same size uh, because of the nature of the volunteers, because of the diversity, because of the organization based on language, based on the uh, political loyalties that existed that cut across all of that. Um, so it's it's a bit of a different kind of military organization, but no, I would agree that that probably was a big factor why I wanted to study a commander, why I wanted to study a, a human being who was also a, a hub of decision making, both for his own well-being and um, in the execution of his command. So let's talk about some of his, his early life a bit. I was really fascinated to read about his early years is he grew up in China or is he grew up partly in China, went to school in China, as you mentioned earlier. But I'm also curious before we get into to too much of that, you noted in, in the early part of the book that there are a lot of inaccuracies about him that are out there in published material that he claims that he did this, but he didn't uh, claims that he was, he was fighting in this part of the world, but no, he wasn't. Like, where do those come from? And why do you think there were so many of them for this particular person? That that was definitely a challenge. Uh, there's Cecil Smith will show up in passing mention in a number of different sources without anyone going into too much depth. So even simple things like what was his prior military service? He, he, that's that's that should be pretty easy to figure out. Mm-hmm. We keep pretty good records on that kind of thing. <laughs> and and yet it wasn't. Um, it was incorrectly reported in a number of secondary sources. And I think a part of that is uh, in this space, there is a tendency, um, there, there's the military records, that's one part of it. But because of the Cold War realities of writing the histories of the international brigades, they're very, very reliant on oral history and the bulk of this oral history uh, in canada was conducted in the 1960s after cecil smith's death in 1963. there's a series of interviews done by the cbc and that became the crux of uh, a lot of the early work on the mackenzie papineau battalion and there wasn't a lot of interviews done by people who worked directly with cecil smith it was mostly members of the of the lower ranks who had their own incredibly valuable perspective 
but when asked questions about, oh, what was the battalion commander's military background? Most of the time they were basing that on a rumor that they heard. And then that rumor that they heard 30 years ago gets written down in a book uh, by, to be blunt, not military historians. The first few books were written by people mostly uh, interested in literature. So in that translation exercise, things get modified. I go back and I read the, and I read the original interview tapes. I say, oh no, that's not what he meant at all. So a lot of it's that basis on oral history, some kind of mistranslations that occur, and also people hiding things during the Cold War, uh, who mm. were kind of deliberately obscuring their connection to the Communist Party and Red Army advisors that they worked with in Spain, downplaying that an absolutely understandable tact to take in the early to mid-1960s. But that reliance on oral history had that cumulative effect of, um, of confusing things. The rumor, and it does appear to just be a rumor, I'd love to be proven wrong if there's any evidence out there that Cecil Smith spent any time in Latin America. That seems to be completely unfounded, but it's been reported as truth over and over and over again. Well, as they say at the end of The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, when legend becomes truth, uh, print the legend, right? It's more, it's more interesting uh, that way. But, but, but then how do you, so how do you go about then? Like it, these things almost to a certain extent become canon, don't they, in his life when, when these things get repeated over and over again? So how do you try to go about when there are these fragments existing all over the place and trying to correct that record? Because I did notice at a couple spots early in the book, you note that I can't definitively say on this. So what's that balance for you of noting that there are some inaccuracies that 100% we can confirm are inaccurate versus other ones that are likely inaccurate based off of the other information you have, but can't quite confirm 100%. Yeah, so the, the fighting in uh, Latin America is probably the best example of that. That's something that Tim Buck, uh, the secretary of the Communist Party, Secretary of the Part Communist Party of Canada said, and you would think he would know. Uh, given his station, given his role in the recruiting process, you would think he would know that. So you think that there would be some credence to that. That must have come from somewhere. And yet there's no record of it apart from that quote and the secondary source literature that relied upon it almost exclusively, but during the time period that he may have gone, he was alleged to have gone, there's zero indication that he was doing anything other than publishing his work on a regular basis with the Communist Party press. So he could have written a whole bunch of things in advance. He could have had someone else publish things under his name and then just never told anyone that he met, that he went, never told anyone in Spain, never told, never disclosed it um, on his personnel files, either with the, uh, either with the Spanish Republican army or with the Canadian army um, during the second world war, never told his child, 
who he told other things to, but that doesn't make a lot of sense. So in the absence of any positive indication that it happened, I have to say, well, it's possible, but with the information we have, it seems very unlikely. But as I said, maybe someday someone will find a letter, a note, a record, and I'll I don't want to say I'll eat my hat because I've confessed that at present it's unknowable, <laughs> but unlikely. Yeah. Um, but that would really provide an interesting addition to our knowledge about Canadian Latin American history. And and I'll say too, like from a reader perspective, I find that kind of stuff really interesting where you don't quite know. We, we talked a couple of years ago about Tom Thompson and the mystery surrounding Tom Thompson's death and, and the different theories that surround it. And I like that those things exist where we don't know for sure, where we might have an inclination, we might have a, a sense of what it was, but we don't know because the only person, as far as we know right now, who knows 100% is no longer with us and can't tell that story. So having those unknowns, it almost humanizes it in, in a way to me that, you know, to a certain extent, human beings are unknowable or at least can can hide whatever they want to hide if that's what they choose to do and having that mystery there is is intriguing in a way in a sense so you know as as i was going through it and thinking you know like this guy is you know full of surprises you might not know everything about him i don't know there, there's an intrigue to that that i certainly appreciate from a reader perspective i would imagine though from a researcher perspective and a writer perspective that that would be somewhat anno annoying at times because you oh, want to know it, everything it, about them. It's absolutely infuriating. You just, <laughs> you've looked under every rock and you just wonder if the next rock will be the one where it's hiding. Uh, but I'd add that I think it's also very much part of the working class, lower middle class experience where those histories yeah. are written honestly, because the keeping of papers is really a trapping of some degree of wealth, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you are working class, lower middle class, something like that, you probably have didn't have the luxury at this time of keeping every handwritten letter, ha keeping copies of every handwritten letter you sent out, Yeah, which would provide all those kinds of clues and could be cross-referenced across each other. Cecil Smith had nothing like that. He did leave fawns at the Library and Archives Canada, but that was part of the writing of the official history, which was never completed project. Not here's boxes and boxes of my letters and my personal records. Right. So that's another difference between biography of uh, <clears throat> a character like Cecil Smith and you know a professional Canadian general like Harry Carrer. For sure. For sure. And it's one of those things, too, that I, I like to think that in 100 years, and I'm kind of glad I won't have to be here to deal with it. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think there will be a boon for people who study not political figures or, you know, the, the, the more social working class people who are a lot of whom are using digital platforms right now, email, stuff like that, that I just assume everything is being cached somewhere and somewhere, yep. you know, that, like, you know, that they're like, you know, you can't make a phone call without somebody knowing about it. So that, that these things will be made available in some capacity. And I do wonder what history will look like then in terms of what will be available to folks. Cause obviously at the political end, the way certainly I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago that 
I know somebody who was working on the collection of the Harper Papers that started right, right. after the election in 2015. And that looked differently than other collections of, of prime ministerial papers look like. And moving forward, what, what will that look like for social historians or people who work on middle, lower working class folks? Because there's different things that are going to be available, whether that's emails or the use of social media by different people. There's going to be a lot more collected and available to historians 100 years from now than you had access to looking at this guy's story from 100 years ago. Definitely. Uh, it'll be an interesting exercise. I, too, am glad I will not be there for it in uh, filtering <laughs> and aggregating. And, yeah, it'll be uh, brutal. <laughs> as, as, a, as a counterpoint to the Cecil Smith didn't leave papers and how that complicates things, yeah. a part of that is that you, I, I've studied him in so much that I, I feel like I know him pretty well. But in not keeping papers, uh, we don't have his, I'll call it his inside voice. Right. We have a yeah. lot of his letters, a lot of his articles and all of that gives insight. But as I try and cover in the book, um, there's necessary there's there's an ongoing propaganda war at this at this place in time that he is knowingly a part of. Mm -hmm. And sometimes he kind of breaks ranks, but often he's he's playing his part. And it's uh, it's difficult. And in cases, it's with access to contemporaneous records that were maintained by the International Brigade that not available until the 90s, you could kind of filter what was actually happening versus what he was saying was happening. Uh, but you don't get his inside voice except in uh, for a handful of reports that he that he filed that have been retained there in right. the International Brigade records. The counterpoint to that, though, is that Bill Crame, the Canadian Trotskyist who I'm researching, who was in Barcelona as sort of a, a lone agent, his organization, which was considerably smaller, it was only about 100 people at any given time, the League for Revolutionary Workers Party, um, their, their members, many of whom became quite well-to-do in the late 40s, 50s, 60s, and Bill Crame lived to be 105. So all of the papers, all of the individual letters that were sent out, almost all of it came back to Bill Crane later in life. There was a lot of intermarriage within the organization. So the kids and the grandkids all knew each other. So you have a copy of the letter that, I, that my dad wrote back and you have the response and um, they were just put into boxes and over decades, they made their ways back to Bill Crane's house. So it's for me, that's a as a researcher, it's a huge pain to sort through onion paper and figure out which letter replies to who and uh, who all these people are and that kind of thing. But it's a completely different experience because I get the their inside voice, mm -hmm. the stuff that's meant for internal consumption, and can juxtapose that with with what they were publishing, with what they were writing and providing to the outside world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's a valuable insight for sure. And uh, and my apologies, I said William Crelm earlier because I can't read my own writing. Uh, the H <laughs> I wrote to look like a, an L, and I said Crelm earlier. So uh, so my apologies uh, for getting that one getting that one wrong. Now I do want to talk a little bit about what might have influenced some of those inside thoughts 
and what might have been going through his head because the book starts and we're situated in China. And the parents, uh, Cecil Smith's parents, were in China working as missionaries. They're during the uh, Boxer Rebellion and a time of great violence in, in China. And I, I'm just curious to know for, for you, why was it important to include that part of the story of, of Cecil Smith's early years and that of his parents in China? And how do you think that influenced him once he made it to North America? Well, I could have happily written another two or three chapters about his time in China and about his parents. Uh, what made it the book is a pretty substantially pared down. So I was just so fascinated by uh, the missionary life that his parents had. And missionaries keep just the best records, just mm-hmm. incredibly mm-hmm. detailed <laughs> records about everything they do. Um, and his parents were extremely interesting, extremely courageous in the sense that their their religious beliefs, their values, uh, they put those ahead of their personal safety. Your whatever we think about the nature of the missionary role in in China at this time, notwithstanding, there's lots that can be said about that. But in the sense that they put their values ahead of their personal safety. These two people were fascinating to me. And it seemed impossible to me that Cecil Smith, uh, as a child, growing up in about as rural as you could get, China, Guizhou, or Quechua province, uh, couldn't be influenced by his parents' dedication to a cause. That just seemed like something he had to uh, he had to absorb from his time with them, and and I came to the conclusion that that he did, um, as well as the idea of empire and what um, what Britishness meant. Uh, these a lot of these pockets of British missionaries uh, and the, these schools in the in the in the far reaches from the British point of view. Um, almost became more British than the people who were physically in Britain because they they clung to those trappings so tightly. Right. So Cecil Smith grew up with that, and he grew up with this the the religious convictions of 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 his parents. So given where he ended up politically and public statements of the Communist Party of Canada uh, about religion uh, in the early 1930s, I just had to dig into that and understand um, what I thought he absorbed from that experience and how he moved away from certain certain parts of that. His mother, in particular, uh, was just the, the, uh, an, incredibly, uh, an incredibly brave woman who, uh, who suffered no fools, was very scholarly, very devout, uh, and would go on, who would lead extremely long expeditions through the mountains in order to meet a new village and to proselytize there. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at it from that point of view, going to Spain doesn't seem so <laughs> off the beaten path. That's true. Yeah, that's true. And you, there's the story too, that she got thrown off a cliff, right? That, uh, that she survived that uh, during the, the rebellion, just, a, just an incredible story. And, and you're right that it, it does, 
read like there's a lot to be told there that yeah you could you could have had a lot more information but i, I certainly understand why i assume it was an editor's decision to try to pare yeah. that down <laughs> <laughs> so how do how do we get then he, he comes to north america and he's still with missionaries and and living with them and and you note know, that in the communal environment it makes sense to him and, and you talked about earlier he goes from banking to communism and I'm curious to me that that makes sense because in this era, 1920s into the 1930s, the Communist Party of Canada gets a lot more popular once we get into the Great Depression. And I could see somebody who is working in finance going towards communism during this time. Like this is a, a moment where if you look at pop culture, if, if I could sort of just use an example from stuff I know a little better than this is you see a lot of movies and radio shows where bank robbers are presented as the heroes because there was this idea in the culture that it was financial institutions, particularly the banks who were responsible for the depression. So these individuals, the Bonnie and Clyde's of the world were held up as, as the heroes of the every person. And so I can see why that transition of, of somebody from the institution to communism makes sense from that perspective. But for you, as someone obviously who knows his story a lot more intimately than I would, how would you trace his, his evolution from arrival in Canada to his career and then eventually that transition into communism? Yeah, the, the timing of his transition to communism more or less coincides with the onset of the depression and so from that point of view yeah absolutely makes sense and that was my sort of beginning hypothesis well why did he make this shift well the depression hit there you go but as you get into it more there's there I, i'm glad i didn't stop the analysis there because although it absolutely makes sense there's nuance within that mm -hmm. so for instance, um, he lost his job as a banker before the depression hit. So I don't know why he lost that job as a banker. I know he later lost a job as a journalist because he was trying to organize a union for newspaper men. That was the term they used at the time. Maybe something similar happened with, uh, with the bank. I don't know. But it's not difficult to imagine some kind of falling out, some kind of difference of opinion, or something completely unrelated. I don't know. But he was out of the banking before the Depression started, and he had already transitioned to being a mainstream journalist, again, before uh, the Depression started. And in August 1929, when he was a reporter for the Mail and Empire, he covered, among many of his other stories, an incident that happened in Toronto, where uh, Denny Draper, the chief constable for the city of Toronto police, basically routed a public gathering of communists in Queen's Park. And then a similar thing happened a few days later. And this was prior to the onset of the Depression. This, well, prior to Black Friday, right? The Depression is a bigger phenomenon than that. But prior to the, the crash, all of this was happening. And as part of his job as a journalist, he was spending a lot of time in courtrooms, a lot of time interacting with the police. 
and he became aware of a group called the Canadian Labor Defense League, which was part Communist Party front and part legitimate um, civil rights litigations, mutual support kind of organization. They provided lawyers for workers who had been evicted, who had you know, been arrested because uh, you weren't allowed to have public meetings in languages other than English at the time in Toronto. Um, and he got to know a guy named Oscar Ryan. He who was a, a prominent member of the Communist Party, but Cecil Smith was a member of the Canadian Labor Defense League for a full year before he joined the Communist Party. So he he watched, he observed, he ran into troubles when he was just tried to unionize newspaper men. He had financial problems at some point, presumably having lost his job. He sees the capitalist state not providing for the working class the way he understood British values to provide for the working class. He saw corruption from the police in those instances of brutality, in the fact that uh, it took the Communist Party and the CLDL to get them lawyers just so they could defend themselves. He watched all of that happen. So he's moving incrementally to the left as he's losing faith in uh, the in the political mainstream in the parliamentary process. And then the summer of 1931, the leadership of the Communist Party of Canada is arrested. And this is a galvanizing moment for him. Having, having gone through this three-year-ish gradual process of losing faith, losing faith, but not joining the Communist Party yet, he finally joins the Communist Party just as the party is made illegal. He makes that leap. He doesn't join the party when it's completely legal to do so. He joins it when it becomes illegal. So it coincides with the Depression, but there's also a lot of other things happening there. Right, right. It's almost, almost sounds like a certain subversiveness to it as well that he, he's he's going for. And so, so the appeal for him of communism and the party itself, do you have a sense of how ingrained that was for him and whether or not what he saw in China uh, influenced that or was it really a product of those North American years, his, his career path, uh, the struggles that he had in that capacity? Like, like how, do you, how do you reconcile all of that put together, that path that leads him to that moment where now this party is illegal and that's where he makes that leap? I think he saw what he had experienced in China as being, uh, I'm torn between how much uh, contemporary Marxist language to use as he would have described it now, which is modern <laughs> vernacular. Um, the way it was expressed at the time was that there were contradictions within the system. Right. And those contradictions within the system would ultimately lead to a crisis that would lead to the collapse of the capitalist state. And imperialist, imperialism and high finance capitalism were like the, the worst forms of capitalism. Uh, fascism was the worst form of capitalism. So when a state reaches that, the contradictions uh, become so uh, so harsh, so bad that the revolution can take place. 
more or less. That's the, that's the narrative. Um, and there's this idea of the inevitability of communism, but the idea was to be prepared to have the, have, uh, to have the Bolshevik party in place to take the reins when the time was right. So I think Cecil Smith looked on his time in China as having experienced some of those points where a state had grown to where those um, contradictions were extremely pointed and that the revolution would probably happen there before it happened in Canada. But he saw that you know, just like it called them the bad things that were happening in Canada as an indication of those contradictions coming to a point of crisis. So I think he took that kind of global view of why the communist system was uh, A, better, and B, inevitable, applied it in his thinking about his experiences in China, applied it to his experiences thinking about it in Canada, but to connect it to Spain, that that rupture was happening in Spain. And that's, that was what the Spanish Civil War was. Right. Therefore, right. worth and putting so your life on would, the line. That draws them to it. Yeah. 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 That makes yeah, that, that makes sense. So what about you you mentioned before we started to record the Norman Bethune connection to this? And a lot of people might be familiar with Norman Bethune, maybe more familiar with Norman Bethune than Edward Cecil Smith. But how does Norman Bethune tie into this and what was the relationship between them? So Norman Bethune is arguably the most well-known Canadian in the world, not to Canadians, uh, but to <laughs> total number of people because he's the only foreigner mentioned in Mao's collected works. So he is extraordinarily well-known to the people of China. Um, Bethune, before he went to China and famously worked with Mao, he had previously gone to Spain and ran a mobile blood transfusion service. So that's, that's Bethune uh, in a nutshell. His connection to Cecil Smith is rather interesting. Cecil Smith's wife was a woman named Lillian Gouge. She's a uh, working class family. Her father was a carpenter uh, and she was the secretary at the missionary organization that Cecil Smith's parents were part of and where he lived, where he physically lived when he first came to Canada. So that's how they met. And because, uh, as Bethune put it, there's the poor man's tuberculosis and the rich man's tuberculosis, uh, Lillian contracted tuberculosis from poor housing. And the party made arrangements for her to go to get surgery from the best in the business, Norman Bethune in Montreal. And the nature of that relationship, I avoid speculating. Um, a lot of people <laughs> push me towards speculating because Bethune was <laughs> known to be a bit of a womanizer. There's uh -huh. no indication on the records available that it was necessarily romantic, but it was definitely a close personal relationship. Uh, Bethune operated on her, saved her life, and they became close friends, maintained a correspondence. Uh, they met up 
when Bethune returned from Spain and Cecil Smith was still in Spain. Family lore is that Lillian, who's very interested in events in China, told Bethune, you should go to China. That's, that's where these contradictions are becoming most acute. That's where you can be the biggest help. And there are reasons why Bethune couldn't go back to Spain, so going to China made, made plenty of sense. There were other reasons. I'm not pretending that her words were the only reason Bethune went to China. But as an indication of how special his relationship with her, whether it was romantic or not, um, she was named in his will. She was named in his will in the same paragraph as ex-wives and ex-lovers. Infer from that what you will. Mm -hmm. And there were previous letters from Bethune to Lillian in Canada and from Bethune to Tim Buck, Secretary of the Communist Party of Canada, to pass the message on to Lillian, saying, Dear Lillian, and he uses very friendly, familiar language, I would like you to come join me in China. I would like uh, to make arrangements for you to come join me in China. She didn't speak Chinese. She did not have any medical skills. So this was clearly a matter of, uh, of companionship, of the, right. the closeness of the relationship. And notably, the only known photograph of Mao Zedong and Norman Bethune in the famous meeting of the two, the only known photograph was tucked into the letter that was sent to Lillian in Canada. Wow. So that is now in the museum in Beijing, the People's Museum in Beijing. And uh, there's a, a copy of it that was made before it was given from Bill Smith, son of Edward Cecil Smith, to that museum. Wow. That's, uh, quite, that's quite a cool story. Uh, for like, uh, yeah, just that's an amazing story and, and one of those cool things to come out of biogra biographical work for sure. So we're we've gone forty eight minutes ish of us talking. We haven't talked about the Spanish Civil War at all, and part of that is by design. So in the show notes and on Active History, I'll link to the discussion that Tyler that you had with the good people at. Mac and the Wilson Institute for Canadian History, uh, where you talked about some of the Spanish Civil War stuff, and also a discussion that you had with SpanishCivilWar.ca a couple of years ago. And if you want more on the Spanish Civil War particularly, and I'll also link to our discussion with Jeanette Higgins about her book and uh, her father's role in the Spanish Civil War. So we'll get all like Spanish Civil War in it, but uh, it, it, you can find all that stuff there. So Tyler, just for people to know, though, like, how do you consider or think about the Spanish Civil War? Why do you think and why do you think it's important for people in 2021, Canadians in 2021, to not forget the stories of those who went and the overall reasoning why so many people in Canada felt compelled to travel to Spain to participate in this conflict? Well, uh, that shifted from when I started the book to when I published the book. Okay. Because uh, you know how fast academic publishing happens, right? Just just like lightning. <laughs> it, took, it took a while for this to come out, right? Yeah. So when I started writing it, it was before the 2016 election. It was before Charlottesville. It was before any of those things. So a lot of the stuff that I'm dealing with in this 
book about um, conflicts, serious conflicts between the left and the right uh, and misinformation, um, arguments over to what extent the Soviet Union was a, uh, a utopia at the time and to what extent it was a, a dark gray hellscape. A lot of that stuff in that moment when I started, I don't want to downplay it because we're talking about um, circumstances where so many people uh, lost their lives, but the, the ideological conflict almost seemed quaint, almost seemed like something that we couldn't see again almost fast forward to today and um this two people can be physical neighbors but live in alternate realities is now seems more acute than ever right. so for me studying studying cecil smith as a representative character as a, a representative of the people that went to spain was very enlightening in that sense, it helped me think more about how people who ostensibly live the same life can have such different points of view on what is in fact happening in the world. So if people want to find the book again, it's not for King or Country, Edward Cecil Smith, the Communist Party of Canada and the Spanish Civil War. Good job on getting the Oxford comma in there, by the way. I was very excited. Thank you. Uh, I'm happy <laughs> to see that. So if people want more information about the book, they want to pick up the book or, or find more about you, where can they find more information and uh, what else you got going on right now? Uh, the book is available wherever fine books are sold. Uh, it is uh, it is available from the publishers, University of Toronto Press. Um, consider picking it up through your local bookstore uh, if they're if they are so inclined. A lot of them are great for that, and it's nice to give your money to the the good people of of your local bookstore versus Amazon. Yep. Uh, what have I got on the go? I'm working diligently on my dissertation for my PhD. Uh, and I'm hoping to see the return of my uh, Bill Graham book about the League for Revolutionary Workers Party back from peer review in the not too distant future. I'm on very Twitter so, at Tyler Wenzel, but not very active there. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, and we'll link to, to all this stuff too. I just got to say, I mean, what are you trying to do to the rest of us when, you know, you PhD, SJD, you know, military service, like you're really putting the rest of this to shame there, Tyler. <laughs> well, that's, that's a big compliment coming from you, Sean. Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, well, congratulations on the book. Uh, as I said, I really enjoyed it. Encourage everybody to check it out. Like I said, if you want more on the Spanish civil war specifically, I'll link to some of the other conversations that uh, Tyler's had with people, uh, in various other media. So, uh, Certainly encourage you to check those out as well and check out the book. So uh, Tyler Wenzel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Sean. Appreciate it. So there you have it. My conversation with Tyler Wenzel. And again, I thank him for joining me. And of course, the book, Not for King or Country, Edward Cecil Smith, The Communist Party of Canada and the Spanish Civil War. And as I said off the top, do check the show notes if you want some interviews that Tyler's done more specific to the Spanish Civil War. And we'll also link to a post that he did over at Active History back in July 
that looks at a source that he actually found after the book was published, which is one of those infuriating things that happens when you publish something and find this source. So he put together a post over on the website that really looks at that source. It's a great piece. So we'll link to that as well. A lot of great material available about Tyler and his work. So I was really excited to have the opportunity to speak with him very much. Enjoyed that one. So that will do it for this week. Thank you everybody for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcast. Do the likes, ratings, comments, all that good stuff. Tell other people about the show if you like what you hear. Helps us grow. Helps keeps us going here on the History Slam as we come to the fall. My favorite time of year. Autumn. Cool nights, warmish days, beautiful colors. It's a great thing. And we are going strong on the road to 200 episodes here on the History Slam. It is hard to believe that it's been just over nine years and 190 episodes. Kind of crazy to think about, but we are going strong on the road to 200. We'll keep going weekly through the fall. Got some really fun stuff lined up for you over the next few months. But as always, do let me know what you want to hear on the show, historyslam at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. And of course, head on over activehistory.ca. Check out all the great material that we got going on over on the website as it'll pick up again after our little summer hiatus that we like to take in August as everybody refreshes in the dog days of the summer. So very much excited for everything that we got coming forth over the next few weeks. So thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll be back with you again next week. But until then, if you're up and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.